A philosopher once said that the search for happiness is the chief cause of unhappiness. The search for happiness is really one of the chief causes of being unhappy. So many people believe that being happy is about attaining something or gaining something or being somewhere and they're looking for all of the external ways that they can find happiness in their life. When the Bible teaches us, as we look through the Beatitudes in the book of Matthew, as we begin a new series today called Happy in Jesus, we learn that happiness is not something external that makes us happy on the inside. Instead, True happiness is something on the inside that we experience because of the Lord working that brings us a different mindset and disposition when we face the externals in our life. So today we're kind of in a a gap week as we kind of close out the book of Malachi and step into this new series on being happy in Jesus. So take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Malachi chapter 4. And also turn to Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read three verses in the book of Malachi, and then we're going to slide over and we're going to read the first three verses of the Beatitudes as we begin that section in Matthew chapter 5. But Malachi chapter 4 says this, Remember the instruction of Moses my servant, the statutes and ordinances I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. Now, the very last word in the Old Testament is the word curse. Then we turn to the first sermon that we have of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. And let's pick up together in Matthew chapter 5 in verse number 1. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, the disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And then all the way down from verse number 3 through verse number 10, we find it being led off with that word, blessed. With that, let's take a moment and pray together. God, as we open your word today, I pray that you would speak to us and challenge us and open our eyes to the truth of who you are. And Lord, as we we bridge this gap from the Old Testament to the New and from the last message through your prophet, through the first message of uh, Jesus, I pray that our hearts would be in tune and God, that you would teach us And ultimately, Lord, that you would change us. In the name of your son, your beloved son, we pray. Amen. As we look at the difference in Malachi and Matthew, we recognize that it is just a turn of a couple pages in most of our Bibles. We turn from Malachi chapter 4 in the Old Testament, and we thumb just over a couple of chapters, and a couple of pages, and we hit Matthew chapter 1 in the genealogy of Jesus, and chapter 2 with... Uh, Jesus and the, the wise men coming to see him, and Matthew 3 is baptism, Matthew 4, the temptation, and then Jesus starts out on his first sermon. And yet, as we look at these two passages, and we move from the curse of that last word in the Old Testament to that blessing, that first 
message of Jesus in the New Testament, we find that the whole world and everything in it has changed. The context is very different and everything about it is, is new and fresh. But I want us first to kind of go back and think about this last message in the Old Testament. It is a final warning from God that he speaks through the prophet Malachi. And remember, God knows all things and God has all things in control. And so he knows that for the next 400 years, he's not going to speak through one of his prophets. And so these words are important. Notice that final warning in Matthew chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. As we think about the final warning, we find that there are two big messages that come out of that. First off, there is a message to remember the word of God. He says, remember the words of Moses, the instructions and the statutes and the ordinances that Moses has taught you. So he goes back and he says, look, I'm, I'm going to, he doesn't, they don't know this, but he, he the, the Lord is going to be quiet for 400 plus years. And it's like, let me tell you how to live in these 400 next years. Let me tell you how to live in your life today. Remember the word of God. That is the key to life. That's really the key to happiness and blessing in our life. Matter of fact, when we think about the word blessed in the New Testament that Jesus begins with, the book of Psalms begins with the word blessed. And it tells us and focuses us back on the word of God, where it says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffer, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. The blessed man of the Old Testament is going to be one who meditates on God's word day and night, and then the Lord says, and he's going to be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit and season and his leaf shall not wither and whatever he does shall prosper. So in the Old Testament, as we think of this picture of being blessed, God saying, look, believers in Malachi's day, 430 years before Jesus comes, let me give you a key that you need to grab onto and remember. Remember my word. And what a word for us today. As we're in the challenges and the culture wars that we find ourselves in today. And hasn't it been an interesting week this last week? And don't you think that, that God has a word for us through all of this? Maybe it's those same words. Remember the words and instructions and ordinances and statutes that Moses has taught us. Maybe we need to go back to Genesis 1 and, and remember that God is the creator of life. And because of that, life is, is precious in his sight. That life is special. That humanity, when he created male and female in his image, that was very, very good in his eyes. And God set the standard for the sanctity of life as he created male and female, as he created marriage between a man and a woman. Maybe today, amid the culture wars, we just need to go back as believers and say, we're not going to bend to the culture. We're not going to be intimidated by the angry. Instead, we're going to remember the word of God. And that's where we land. And that is where we land today. And that's the truth of where we land today. Remember the word of God. That was his first word. But as he closes the book in verses five and six, he gives them another word. And it is this, repent 
or else. He says, I'm going to send the prophet Elijah. And what I long to see happen is the hearts of fathers being turned back to children and children being turned back to their fathers. I think that he's picturing here a societal repentance where people are right with the Lord and they are right with each other. When he pictures Elijah, remember Elijah in the Old Testament. Elijah was a preacher of repentance. When he stood against King Ahab and Jezebel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah on Mount Carmel, and he looked at the people, the Jewish people, and said, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, serve him. If Baal's God, serve him. And so he has the the priests of Baal and the priests of Asherah go up up on Carmel and there they cry for their God to answer from heaven with fire and the day passes on and hours go by and there is no answer and then Elijah comes before the people and he builds an altar of 12 stones picturing the 12 tribes and he takes 12 pots of water in a day that is filled with with drought and he pours that on the sacrifice and he cries out and God consumes and licks up off all the water from the altar. If God is God, then serve him. May there be societal repentance. May the hearts of dads and the hearts of kids and the hearts of families, the hearts of the nation of Israel be turned back to the Lord God. And if not, there will be a curse. Now the word curse is just not like, hey, you're going to have bad luck. You know, you broke a mirror. It's not like that. The picture for the word curse is utter destruction. If you don't listen to the words and repent, you will experience destruction. As we see this prophecy in the Old Testament, there's debate on who Elijah is and when that great and terrible day of the Lord is coming. I will tell you this, there is coming a day when we will stand and give an account before the Lord and our heart needs to be right. But picture the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 1, it starts in the beauty of a garden. And it ends with the word curse. Is there hope? Is there help? Yes, there is. And it's coming. But... Before we get there, we not only see that there's a final warning, but we find that between Malachi 4.6 and Matthew 5.3, there is also a changing world. And so in order to catch the context of where we are going to jump off in Matthew chapter 5, we have to go back and I want you to, to see and again just to experience a little bit of Israel's angst and, and hope Israel was looking for a religious and political uh, military messiah who was going to come in and put down the Romans and lead Israel to a place of great strength and great stature. That's what they were looking for. Why were they looking for that? Well, let's, let's just kind of in the next uh, four to five minutes or so cover about a thousand years, okay? It, it won't take long, all right? 
So we go back to 1000 BC and we find that Saul is on the throne. There's a united kingdom in Israel. Everybody's on the same page. Saul's on the throne. Then David's on the throne. And man, the kingdom starts to be blessed and things are happening and there's conquest and the spreading out of territory. And then Solomon is on the throne and there's, there's great wealth and great wisdom. But you remember Solomon's heart begins to turn away from the Lord because of the pagan wives that began to lead him in, into pagan worship. And then after, uh, Solomon dies, his son, uh, Rehoboam and Jeroboam get into a skiff and, and we find that there are 10 tribes and two tribes. The kingdom splits in 931 BC. Now there are 10 tribes to the north and they are called Israel and two tribes to the south called Judah. So we have those tribes. In 722 BC, the Assyrians come in and take the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom is evil. For all of the years between 931 and 722, they have been filled with idolatry, immorality, acting the way of the Canaanites and everything around them. And so the Lord allowed them to get carried off into captivity. Israel had a few good kings, but again, many of them were pretty sketchy. And so in between 605 and 586, the Lord allowed the Babylonians to take all of them. And they carried off many folks to Babylon, guys like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're carried off into Babylon. So now there's this dispersion of the Jewish people throughout the world. This is, this is uh, in 586. Well, in 539 BC, there's a party going on in the book of Daniel, and there's handwriting on the wall. And with that handwriting on the wall, the kingdom now is being taken away from the Babylonian and it's been, and it's given over to the Medes and the Persians. And so the, the Persian empire begins to rule and begins to reign. And the Persian empire shows some mercy to, to the Jewish people. They allow, uh, people to go back in 538 BC. There's a guy named Zerubbabel and he begins to lead some, some of the people that were scattered. He begins to lead some of them back to, to Jerusalem. And then there's a guy named Ezra and they begin to rebuild the temple. Then there's a guy named Nehemiah and they begin to rebuild the wall. And then we pass all the way through about a hundred years or so. And that's where we find Malachi preaching about 430 BC and Malachi is preaching, but the people, they're walking uh, in spiritual stagnation and they are worshiping with spiritual apathy. And so the Lord says, look, if you don't listen up, the curse is going to come. Then that's the closing word. So as we close the Old Testament, Persia is on the throne. But around 356 BC, there's a guy a baby born into the house of Philip of Macedon, whose name is Alexander. Alexander is tutored by Aristotle. He then rises up to become Alexander the Great. And in 334 to 331 BC, he destroys the Persians and now Greece is in control. Now the Greek word for Greece is the word Hellas. And so we find the Hellenization of the known world during that time. And this takes place also from uh, the north and in Eastern Europe, all the way down through the Middle East into Northern Africa. We find that Alexander is on the throne and Alexander is ruling and reigning. And the, the language of Koine Greek is spread and the culture of the Greeks is spread and, and everything is going wonderful for about 10 years. And then Alexander in 323 BC dies. 
And as he dies in 323 BC, they ask him the question, who are you giving your kingdom to? And he says, whoever's the strongest. Well, what happens is, is the kingdom then splits into four different sections. But there are two that, that are going to be important to Israel. To the north of Israel in the area of Syria are the Seleucids. Seleucus was the first ruler, but the Seleucids. And then down to the south in northern Africa, in Alexandria, Egypt, as the capital, are the Ptolemies. So now you find for the, for the next couple hundred years, you find that Israel is caught. They are caught between the Seleucids to the north and the Ptolemies of the south. So Israel is in this position that after the Greek leader Alexander the Great dies, sometimes the Ptolemies, who are a little more nice, uh, are in, in control and reign. And then sometimes the Seleucids come down and they begin to show power and control. Well, there's a guy named Antiochus III. His name is Antiochus Megas. Antiochus the Great. Wouldn't that be neat to put your, you could just name yourself, you Buddy Megas, Buddy the Great. I mean, you know, what, what a name, all right? So, so Antiochus, the Seleucid leader, begins to take over Israel, but he shows kindness to the Jewish people, allows them to worship. But then Antiochus has a son who is Antiochus the Fourth. He calls himself Anti, when your dad calls himself the Great, how do you do better than that? So he calls himself Antiochus Epiphanes. God manifest. Antiochus Epiphanes then comes down. They already control the Jewish area, but they think, Antiochus Epiphanes thinks, I'm going to be the next Alexander the Great. So he slides down through the areas of the the Jews, Israel, because they already control that, and he heads into Egypt. And he thinks, I'm going to take the Egyptians. I'm going to be a great ruler again. You say, buddy, why does this matter? Well, it's going to matter in just a minute. While he is in Egypt, he has conquered a few cities. He is heading toward Alexandria. And as he gets close to Alexandria, a Roman senator comes out whose name is Papilius Laenus and comes out. He's a Roman senator in Alexandria, Egypt, comes out to meet him and basically says, you need to go home. And he's like, hey, man, I am Antiochus Epiphanes. I am a, you know, I'm a conqueror here. And so uh, Laenus does this. He takes his walking stick and he draws a circle around Antiochus Epiphanes. And he says, you have a decision to make. You can either go home or consider yourself in war with Rome. And I've drawn a line in the sand and you need to let me know before you leave that circle. That's where we get the statement, some believe, drawing a line in the sand, by the way. All right, 168 B.C. So Antiochus Epiphanes decides, I'm not fighting him. He goes home, but he is ticked off. All right, what's the next major city that he comes to as he goes north? The city of Jerusalem. He gets to Jerusalem and he hears because he has been mean to the Jewish people and tried to Hellenize the priests and, and put Greek influence in culture. He hears that, the, that the, the Jews have been celebrating because there was a rumor he was killed in Egypt. So he's ticked off because he's now embarrassed that he has to go back home and couldn't defeat 
the, the uh, northern, take northern Africa. And then he hears that uh, they're celebrating because I'm dead. And so he goes in in 167 B.C. And he takes an altar or he takes the statue of Zeus and brings it into God's temple. And he has pigs slain upon the altar. And he defiles the temple building. And he doesn't allow the Jewish people to practice their faith anymore, to share their faith anymore. They can't circumcise their babies anymore. He is horrific to the Jewish people. He kills people. He is... The Jewish people, instead of calling him Antiochus Epiphanes, called him Antiochus Epimenes, which means the madman. So, as he destroys the temple, a a dad named Mattathias has some boys, and one of them's name is Judas, and they call him Judas the Hammer, Judas Maccabees. And Judas Maccabees rises up with a group, and he begins to fight against Antiochus Epiphanes and finally defeats him. They clean out the temple, all right, that was defiled. They restore it. They have enough uh, oil for a candle to burn for one day. They put the oil in the candle. They light the candle, and the candle burns for eight days. That's why the Jews celebrate Hanukkah, okay? That's, that's why because of that victory of Judas Maccabees over the Seleucid Empire and the Seleucid king, uh, emperor at that time, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. And so then Israel, after they're caught, now Israel is free. They defeat the Seleucid Empire, and for about 140 to 63 B.C., they are free. They're an independent nation. Now, Rome really is the nation on the move right now. And Rome is like, okay... We can take them, but we'll just let them have some freedom for a little bit. So their kind of Rome is on the doorstep, but they have a sense of freedom. And then, guess what happens? The Jewish people don't get along. And two guys are fighting for the kingship and the high priesthood. And so they both appeal to Rome, and Rome says, we're not coming in to take sides. We're coming in to take over. And in 63 BC, a guy named Pompey came in and conquered Israel for Rome. So now Rome is in charge. And with Rome in charge is where we open up the New Testament. Now, now I, I gave you all of that for this reason. The Jewish people had not been in harmony for a thousand years. A thousand BC was the last time they were united and happy together. Can you see why they're probably wanting a a Messiah to come in who's going to be a political and military leader? He's going to unite us. And they've read these prophecies in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that there's going to be one who sits on the throne of David from everlasting. And they've read these promises of the Old Testament. His name is going to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And so now they are looking for for a political military leader to come and lead them to a place of victory. And now with the changing world, we see a fresh word from God. And that fresh word is going to come through the birth of Jesus, the coming of Jesus. And we recognize that Jesus is born and laid in a manger, but recognize in Matthew 
the account that Matthew gives. Matthew doesn't have the shepherds coming to Jesus. Instead, Matthew has the wise men from the east coming and saying, where is he who is born king of the Jews? The king is coming. And now we find the groups of people. Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 begins his ministry. He's calling people to repent. Generally, in in, uh, chapter 4, around verse number 17, he calls people to follow him and Matthew chapter 4 and verse number 19. But here in Matthew chapter 5, we pick up the first real sermon. And he takes and goes to sit down and there are his disciples, a multitude of people around him. And we find the context of the people are basically broken up into four different groups. And let me give them to you real quick. So you'll again kind of catch the context of where we're going with the Beatitudes. First off, as Jesus begins to preach and teach and minister, there are those that are the Pharisees that are there. The Pharisees are uh, those who are steeped in the law. And, and for them, uh, you know, being right and doing right was of the essence, or at least looking right. Then not only are there the Pharisees, but there are the Sadducees. And then there are also the Essenes. And then fourthly, there are the Zealots. Okay, now Jesus is going to preach a message about happiness. And so you have to understand these four different groups in order to kind of get a glimpse of of where Jesus and how he's how he's moving and what he's going to talk about. First off, when we think about the Pharisees, what would happiness mean to the Pharisees? It means everybody obeys the law and everybody looks good and especially they look good. And people follow them. And people say, these guys are my mentors. So happiness for them would be for people to think that they're really religious and they're really good people. That they're legal, uh, and ultimately they're very legalistic. For the Sadducees, the Sadducees were often the rich, those who were steeped into the Greek culture. And they uh, also were, were part of the higher aristocracy. They only took the five books of Moses as scripture. They threw out all the rest, including the prophets. And, and so we, we kind of look at them maybe as being a little more modernist or liberal in some of their teaching. They didn't believe in, in angels. They didn't believe in the resurrection. For them, being religious, but being part of the aristocracy and being rich and part of the steeped in culture uh, would be happiness for them. The Essenes were a kind of a separatist group. These were the folks that say, hey, we're not going to live out in the area where people are. Instead, we're moving out. We're going to be out and we're going to have a little group over here and a little group over here. And happiness to them is separation. They think that the people who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls were probably the Essenes. They lived out in caves. They lived in small groups of bands of families together. And they were away from the political climate, away from the material climate, away from the big cities. That was the Essenes. And then the Zealots and their message was overthrow Rome. Take Rome down. We can do it. Happiness to them would have been Rome falling. So, so we get the context. Jesus comes and he begins to teach and people are basically, Josephus says that these are the four kind of main groups. He's a Jewish historian. And then we really get the key to being blessed. And Jesus begins in Matthew chapter five in verse number three, where he says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As we look through this list, the poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek or humble, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, 
those who are merciful, those who are pure in heart, those who are peacemakers, those who are persecuted. Jesus teaches us something about happiness. And he teaches us this, that happiness is internal, not external. Happiness is not about getting something. It's not about gaining an education or getting a degree or, or prospering materially. He, he lets us and see very, very clearly that happiness is internal and it's that spiritual happiness is, is about internal and not external. Now the word makarios, blessed, gives a picture of inner satisfaction or inner joy. This center of satisfaction that comes down deep in my heart. And Jesus really says, look, it's, it's not found in legalism or the aristocracy. It's not found in separation and it's not found in revolution. You can't manufacture happiness. I find it interesting today. What's the wealthiest nation in the world? The United States. And yet, what do we find in the United States? Unhappy people. And lots of them. Why is that? Because everybody's looking for something out here to make them happy. Just like the Pharisees and Sadducees and Essenes and the Zealots. They were thinking if the circumstances would just change, if life out here would just change, then we'll be happy. And yet from 140 to 63 BC, when Israel had its own independence, they weren't even happy then. They were fighting within the country. So for a thousand plus years... They have been divided and divisive and they think if this guy could just ride in on a white horse and throw off the Romans and if we could all, you know, just uh, sit under our tree and have our own house, then we'll be happy. Well, can I tell you today that there are millions of Americans who have their own tree to sit under and have their own house or apartment or car or money in the bank and many of them are still unhappy and disappointed. Happiness is internal, not external. Secondly, happiness is really built on a spiritual relationship with God. Happiness is built on a relationship with God. As we look down through this list and, and we see the, the pictures back in Matthew chapter 5, notice, notice what he says. Blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be called the children of God. It's all about seeing a relationship with God. And yet he begins with saying this, blessed are the poor in spirit. The Pharisees and the Sadducees want to be able to say, look how happy and healthy and spiritually right I am. And the Lord says to kick it off. You've got to come to a place of spiritual poverty and recognize your sinfulness and your need, not your goodness and your legalism and your ability to follow rules. Happiness is built on a relationship with God. We know since Jesus has come that that relationship with God comes through Jesus. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We know that Jesus said that there's only one way to, to the Father, and that's through him. And so we come to know Jesus, 
or we come to know God through Jesus. So if we want to experience happiness in our life, this inner satisfaction and this, this inner joy, that it only comes one way. It comes through Jesus. And as Jesus saves us and comes into our life, then the Holy Spirit can come in. And as the Holy Spirit works in us, what does the Holy Spirit do? He produces fruit of love and, hello, joy and peace. And yet, what is the world missing today? Joy and peace. And God knows the world is missing patience today. Don't you find it amazing how angry people can get in just one second right now? What happens is as the pressure is building all around them and the pressure begins to squeeze on them, what comes out is what's in their heart. And for us as believers, when Jesus is in our life, then joy and peace and patience can come out. Thirdly, we find that happiness is a present future reality. Happiness is a present future reality. He begins with, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He closes with, blessed are those who are persecuted uh, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we get these, these bookends here where uh, through the Beatitudes that the kingdom of heaven here is, is essential in that we experience happiness in this inner satisfaction now, but there's something greater to come. There's a blessing that is coming that is going to be far greater than anything that we can experience here on this earth. That because of sin has experienced the curse of the fall, and though we can experience inner satisfaction and happiness and, and through the Holy Spirit working in our life, we know that there is coming a day when there will be no more sinfulness, and there will be no more effects of the curse, when we will be in the presence of the Lord. And he says, that kingdom of heaven, though it is in our life and churning in our life, now the greatest aspect of that is yet to come. The happiness can be now, but the great happiness is yet to come. But for many, right here and now is all they have. And so we see that word blessed blessed, and it's not through attaining, but it's through recognizing our poorness spiritually and humbling ourselves before the Lord and mourning and coming humbly before Him, but hungering and thirsting for righteousness and allowing Him to fill us. There are many today They have the stuff money can buy, but they don't have happiness because money can't buy it. It can give them a good time for a little while, but it can't bring the inner joy and satisfaction that only comes through Jesus. And over these next few weeks, as we dig in and think about blessed, we're blessed when we do what? We're blessed when what? we're going to be amazed that it's not about out here. It's about the Lord working right here. And with that, I have to ask you today, are you happy in Jesus? 
Do you know that you know him? Because if you don't know him, there's nothing in the world that can bring this inner joy and satisfaction. I mean, you can mask it, you can make noise, you can shoot drugs, drink alcohol, chase relations. You can do all of those things, but there's only one way to satisfy the inner need of the heart. And it's not in a something. It's in a someone whose name is Jesus. If you don't know him today, we invite you to open up your heart and say, Jesus, I need you to forgive me of sin. And Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sin and rose again. And Jesus, I want a right relationship with you. And then out of that right relationship, he changes everything. Many of you are believers today. And you know what I find? Not only people are unhappy out in the world, there are some people who are unhappy right in the church. And the reason is, is maybe we need to remember the word of God. Stay in tune with the King of Kings. Be filled with the Holy Spirit so that the fruit of love, joy, and peace will move in our hearts fresh again. And that comes through our confession and repentance. God's speaking to you. We're going to take a moment and pray, and then our band's going to come. And we're going to have a time just of reflection. And I, I want to ask you the question, do you know that you're happy in Jesus? Do you know that you know Jesus? And if you're a believer, let me ask you, are you happy in him? If not, the Lord has done everything that he has, has, has made the way to do. But he challenges you in James 4, draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. Father, in the gracious and awesome and wonderful name of Jesus, we thank you, Lord, for your word and the truth in it. And Lord, for those of us who are believers, maybe we need to just be called back to remember Remember our first love, remember your word, to remember our quiet time, to remember that we serve the King of Kings, to remember that we win. Lord, maybe we just need to be reminded and we need to come to a place of repentance today. And Lord, if there's anyone who doesn't know Jesus today, would you draw them to yourself in your awesome and powerful name?